This is a Sandy Boy Productions podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Why Is Everyone Yelling with Lindsay Hine. I'm your host, Lindsay. I'm so grateful you're here today. This is a podcast for parents or anybody helping raise kids and I hope it helps you in some way, shape, or form in your day-to-day parenting and that you walk away feeling encouraged after each episode. Today, you're listening to episode 17, and I'm talking with Dr. Christia Brown. She's an author, researcher, and professor of developmental psychology. She is also the director of Center for Equality and Social Justice at the University of Kentucky. She has a PhD in developmental psychology, and her research focuses on how children develop gender and ethnic stereotypes, how children understand gender and ethnic discrimination, and how discrimination and stereotypes affect children and teens' lives. I listened to her book, Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue, How to Raise Your Kids Free of Gender Stereotypes, and interviewed her the next day. And I want to say thank you to listener Christine for suggesting Dr. Christia to come on the podcast. I really appreciate it and value when listeners of the show recommend guests and tell me what they want to hear on the show because that's what I want to do. I want to bring you episodes that you all want to hear. So never hesitate to reach out to myself or my assistant Emma and let us know who you'd like to hear or a topic you'd like to hear on the show. Uh, You can email me, lindsay at sandyboyproductions.com. You can email Emma, emma at sandyboyproductions.com. All right, if you are enjoying this podcast and you haven't left us a rating and review yet, what are you waiting for? Head over to iTunes or whatever podcast app you listen and leave us a quick rating and review. That is a huge help and new listeners finding this podcast. All right, friends, thanks for being here and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Christia Brown. Today on Why Is Everyone Yelling, I am excited to welcome Dr. Christia Brown to the show. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Today we're going to talk about gender bias, and I'm super excited that I just finished your book. I listened to it on audio, and I was just telling you before the podcast, I feel enlightened, I feel educated, I feel like I really learned a lot. Um, there are so many things that we do culturally that we don't even realize that we're doing, um, that kind of just teaches our kids to be gender biased. So can you first just explain where your passion came from for this topic? Well, I mean, I started in graduate school, so I went to graduate school specifically to study this. So I went to get a PhD in developmental psychology. And it really started by looking around the world and realizing all the times in which we make gender this really important characteristic of a person. You know, so I think it really started, and I say this in the book, but I, and I tell my students a lot, is it started really, I was at a McDonald's getting a happy meal for a kid I was babysitting. You know, I was in my early twenties and they said, do you want a girl toy or a boy toy? And I thought, what a ridiculous question. I was like, I don't know what the toys are. How do I know what this kid will enjoy or not enjoy? And it really just was this light bulb moment about these gender labels are supposed to convey so much meaning about what a person is interested in. And they really ignore any kind of individual interest, right? And so come to find out, I could have gone to graduate school and studied that. And so it really was from the very beginning. And then the more I started doing research on that field, the more I became interested in it. And then it was a matter of thinking about, well, this stuff really plays out in homes and we do it all the time. And there's so many parents that are progressive and um, really want to live this gender kind of egalitarian, gender fair life. They think of themselves as very gender fair and not having stereotypes, but probably don't realize all the ways in which gender kind of gets into the conversations we have, to the culture we have. You know, I say it's kind of like the air we breathe. It's hard to think about it even. You know, it's hard to really label and find all the times that gender sneaks in. And so part of my interest is really the more you start to pay attention 
to gender and the ways in which we use it in society, then once that light bulb goes off, you see it all the time. And you're like, wow, this is a really pervasive and ubiquitous category. It's not very effective in telling us what we're actually like. And yet it really has taken on this importance in our kids' lives and in our in adults' lives and therefore like in our structural lives as well. Yeah. And they still do that at McDonald's, by the way. You know, I don't know if you take your kids to McDonald's, but I do. And they, they definitely still do that. Yeah. It, and they do it at a lot of places like that, you know. Um, Surely if you're someone's going to complained. See, they did at one point, And so some McDonald's stopped doing it. But then I think it drifted back. Mm. You know, for example, Target several years ago made um, a big decision to stop labeling their aisles boys mm. toys and girls toys. And they face so much backlash from that. Um, they weren't changing anything else. They literally only took away the gender label. They were still the pink aisles mm-hmm. and the blue aisles. The Barbies were all still right next to one another. Why do you Nothing need the else label? Changed. Right. And they got a lot of backlash. A lot of, you know, grandmas saying, well, how do I know what toys to buy my grandkids? <laughs> um, and so I think when when companies stopped, it, it seems this so revolutionary an idea of just dropping it but yet people have come to rely on that as some kind of meaningful metric of what your kid's gonna like um can you talk a little bit about when we do treat our kids differently based on their gender how it actually leads to their brains developing differently which limits the kids in the future I think people hear a lot about how the brain is really plastic and flexible, but I think what we forget is that it's not that flexible across our whole lifetimes, Mm. that it's at the very beginning, we are born with a a lot of neural connection. So each of our brain cells is connected to other brain cells with way more connections than we need. And it's a real use it or lose it system. So whatever's being used withers away. It's called synaptic pruning. Like literally it's like coming in with pruning shears and taking away the connections um, that we were born with because the brain is really adaptive and says, well, I guess this isn't necessary. It's taking up energy and space that could be used somewhere else. So let me get rid of it. So the idea is that if kids aren't having certain kinds of experiences early on, The brain says, I don't need those connections there. I don't need those neural structures there. We're going to prune those away. And once they're pruned away, they're really hard to come back. So kids have this really sweet spot in their kind of early years before they're about eight, nine, 10 years old, um, where there's a lot more options to, if you give them a range of things, so everyone having Um, building toys like Legos. So they get to see how things look in space and they can see how shapes look from different perspectives and they get to practice putting things together. If they have things that foster empathy and perspective taking like baby dolls where you have to really take the other person's perspective and think about um, how it looks from a different point of view and whether it be playing like rough and tumble outdoor types of games with balls and bats and things like that, that really help develop some spatial skills. All kids, we would want to have those skills, right? Those are helpful traits we want adults to have. Good um, hand-eye coordination, good spatial skills, good socio-emotional skills. And the problem with, I think, gender stereotypes is that if we only give kids kind of half the toys out there, then we limit their developing the whole range of traits that might be useful for them as adults, that will be useful for them as adults. For example, you know, I think a big one is like boys and doll play. You know, we want boys to grow up to be caring, empathetic dads, right? If, if they choose to have children, we want them to be really good and comfortable with that. And we want them to be attentive to their baby's needs. That's a good human trait. And so if we work backwards and kind of reverse engineer it, well, then we need to do all the things that will help them develop those skills and traits. So let's what what's that look like in childhood? Playing with dolls, playing with babies, playing with stuffed animals in a warm, caring way. So I think part of it is just thinking about what do we want later in adulthood and then figuring out those are really good skills for humans to have. Let's make sure all kids get all of that stuff because we do know it leads to kind of permanent, really structural brain changes 
um, in those early years. But, I mean, obviously we can overcome them. It doesn't mean if we don't do it when they're kids, they'll never be able to do it later. But it definitely um, increases the odds in our favor that we can develop those types of skills in our kids. You know, I, I know you have two girls. I have four boys. So I was talking to my husband about this conversation before we got on, and I was I was just thinking through how we definitely do stereotype here and use the th- words like, it's so rowdy here, it's so chaotic, they're so physical. But part of me, almost for my personal self, uses that as like a... <sighs> I'm not crazy. Like, because I go to my sister's house who has multiple daughters and like one son and my other sister-in-laws as well. And their house just isn't as physical. And I, I, you know, tell myself that in my head to know that it's completely normal and natural that they are physical and they are wrestling all the time. And I'm not crazy. This is, this is their nature. But I do realize as I'm saying this, that I am stereotyping. So how do I like comfort myself like they're doing you know whatever and then and I also wonder you know if there was a girl in our mix maybe she would be a more physical girl because she has three brothers I don't know but can you just kind of like talk to me about that yeah I mean I do think that's where this stuff gets hard in that it's easy to be overwhelmed by the kids that are right in your own household yeah right and so um, but probably even within your four boys, you see that there's a variation and like one of them's probably more rough, rough and tumble than the other one. Totally. Right. Totally. And so that there is variability between the individuals. Um, and that the ones that are the most rough and tumble probably are the ones that are, um, kind of setting the tone. Yeah. And if yeah. the one that's a little bit quieter or a little bit more kind of gentle, um, probably if he had three sisters, he would probably be a much more kind of laid back kind of kid. So like the idea is that there's a lot of individual variation Mm -hmm. among kids. Um, And sometimes that's hard to see when you have, when kids are in your face all the time. Yeah. And I, well, and then the other side is I think you have to tell yourself whatever you can to kind of get through raising four (laughs) kids. I mean, I think especially in the year of COVID when everyone is underfoot constantly. Um, (laughs) Totally. So whatever helps you cope, I say, I don't judge that. Um, but I do think that partly keeping tr- I, the idea that also they're going to be in the same context. So they're going to probably be similar to, then you might have other boys in another household. Um, and that there is research looking at that kind of variability and that there is a lot of variation among individual kids. I would say one of the biggest differences that you see is in the play style. Mm -hmm. So they've done a lot of meta-analyses where they end up putting basically more than a million kids across all of these different studies. So across hundreds and hundreds of studies looking for gender differences that get published in the scientific literature. They put them all into this kind of giant hopper to basically see when we collapse across all these different studies, what do we really see? And most of the time they see not a whole lot of differences. There's no differences in math ability and um, in terms of some of the emotional expression and in terms of personality variables, in terms of extroversion and introversion and all about 78% of the times they're looking for gender differences. They don't find them where you do see them are in play styles and this is exactly this idea of rough and tumble versus mm-hmm. quieter, small play. Mm-hmm. So in a preschool, for example, or in an elementary school, you do see a difference where the boys are more likely to be playing in teams or rough and tumble, usually further away from like the teachers, for example, whereas girls are more likely to be playing like paired off in quieter play, usually closer to teachers. Now, researchers don't know why is that. It doesn't seem to be biology. So I guess that's where the tricky part is. You do seem to see the difference, but it doesn't seem to be strictly, it doesn't really seem to be biological. So it doesn't seem to be related to amount of testosterone, for example. Mm -hmm. It seems to be that boys, once they start paying attention to gender, so around age three, kids start really paying attention to gender. Then they start looking at, okay, there's girls, there's boys. So we'll pretend it's just the binary for a minute. That's a sure. different yes. conversation. But yes. look at the world and they say, 
girls and boys for the most part. Um, and they think I'm a boy, let me do the things boys are supposed to do. And so they gravitate towards boy stuff. So they start really socializing themselves in kind of the ways of boys and the ways you survive boy land is you're just rough and tumble. Otherwise you get kind of pummeled. And girls, the way they survive girl land is they're good at asking questions and taking each other's feelings into account and doing that kind of back and forth talking that girls develop really good skills at. So we see those differences in how boys and girls act actually get bigger as they get older. And as they start boys hanging out with other boys, they become more boy-like, right? They become more rough and tumble. Girls, the more they start hanging out with girls, the more they do the kind of girl play that you typically see on kind of playgrounds. So the difference is not imagined. There is a okay. difference. It's just what's the explanation for the difference. And yes. it seems to be not much the biology, but more kids are really paying attention and boys start acting more like boys the more they notice that being a boy is an important thing. I better pay attention to it. This is what it means to be a boy. Yeah, so many thoughts coming off of that. And, and you know, yeah, I will say my four-year-old, when he we go to my sister's house and she has a five-year-old daughter, he will sit and play quietly with her daughter the way that he doesn't play with his brother. So, yes. And then and then her one son comes to my house and it's mayhem, you know, like he's playing rough. But when he's home with his sisters, he does play a little less or a little more calm. So that totally makes sense. And I, I think that this is a good place to start talking about why it's so important to make sure we're not doing gender only like male only parties or you know only setting up play dates with other boys or going on vacations because one thing that i really really stuck out to me in the book was we separate our our kids and and they end up playing with their girls or you know the boys end up playing with the boys and then they get to be teenagers and they want to like intermingle again but we've kind of separated them and they're like, what do I do? <laughs> so let's just start from square one. Yeah, it's and this is where, you know, I study both gender and race. And there's a lot of, you know, there's obviously differences, but there's also a lot of overlaps. And I always think this is a funny distinction in that we really do allow for gender segregation in elementary school in ways we say, you know, OK, we're going to have a girl party. We would never do that with race. Right. We would right. never say we're only going to include part of your class. We're going to exclude the other part because of this one biological characteristic that makes them different from you. Right. We would never do that because we recognize, well, just knowing someone's race doesn't tell you anything about that person. Um, right. It doesn't tell you. And not to mention, it's just it feels and is very morally um, repugnant, right? To exclude people because of this biological characteristic. But we do it with gender constantly, right? Um, and I, it, it struck home to me once when my own daughter was in like, I don't know, kindergarten, first grade. And one of her friends, she was friends with lots of the boys. And one of them was having a pirate birthday mm. party. And mm. my daughter had heard about it from one of the boys and was really excited because she loved pirates. But come to find out it was a boy only party. Um, and so I thought it wasn't a, if you like pirates, come to the party, Yeah. right? It was it, only if you're a boy, are you allowed to come? And so it was this really salient idea of she really felt excluded because they had a shared interest, but not a shared, you know, set of genitals. <laughs> really, yeah. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we do it all the time with gender and we don't often even question it. And then we expect puberty to hit and them to know how to interact with one another. And middle school is a terrible place for boys and girls to interact with one another. Um, we know that sexual harassment is rampant in middle school. Um, you know, some of our stuff finds 90% of kids get sexually harassed by the time they finish middle school. Um, it's just how they interact. And so, Part of an argument is that we've kept them apart their whole lives. And so one thing they're not good at doing is thinking of the other person as a real, complex, unique individual, right? You just think of girls as a category who has the cooties and boys as a category and they have the cooties. And we don't think of them as 
interesting, complicated people that we can be friends with, right? We don't think of them with all the individual characteristics that we give to our friends. And so then we put them together and all that they know is the gender category because that's what's been made salient. And they're really just not good at interacting with each other as friends. And you can see it in their behavior. Um, yeah, I mean, so and sexual harassment has a lot of negative consequences for both boys and for girls. Um, so we see it associated with things like worse body image. So boys make lots of comments to girls about their bodies in middle school um, in those early, you know, kind of seventh, eighth, ninth grade. Um, they rape their body parts as they walk down the hallways. They, I mean, it's really rampant. Um, they grab and touch them against their wishes. Um, boys get called all sorts of, if boys don't do that, they get called all sorts of homophobic slurs. Yeah. So there's yeah. a lot of pressure on boys to, to do that. Yeah. To do that. So it's this really toxic mix. Um, and then teachers don't know what to do because they don't really want to address it. Um, and there's this, uh, it's just kids being kids, but you see girls have higher rates of depression, worse body image, worse self-esteem, their grades go down, um, all sorts of negative consequences. And partly the, uh, argument a lot of people make is it's, it's people trying to show that they're interested in one another, yeah. you know, puberty and hormones are swirling around. So it's not as though it's a bunch of, you know, predator boys roaming the hallways. It's 13-year-old boys kind of doing their best and trying to handle their raging hormones and trying to show girls that they might be interested in them, but not having the skills or the language or the kind of just social savvy to do that. Um, and so how it comes out is this really bungling mess that kind of mirrors what they're seeing in media and it's kind of what they think they're supposed to be doing and it's what they're feeling peer pressure to do. And so one argument that I try to make is one thing that seems to be helpful is teaching boys and girls to just be friends with one another. You're yeah. not going to sexually harass people that you're friends with and that you've grown up valuing their opinion and thinking about them and what they, what bothers them and what they like. Um, and if we just encourage like literally friendship um, between boys and girls, as opposed to fostering, say, for example, okay, let's have the boys against the girls. We typically foster a lot of competition, um, but just treat each other as friends. Then it becomes much harder to objectify and harass later. Man, it makes me so sad to think of little boys doing that to little girls. And, and, and it is so true. The body, I mean, the, the body image thing is, it's so sad to think of a 14 year old girl self-conscious about her body because of what she thinks other per people perceive it should look like. Ugh. And I mean, we see the numbers at which girls, you know, start to be unhappy with their body is really high, really early, you know, so in elementary school, you see really large proportions of girls saying they like their bodies better if they're on a diet, um, restricting what they're eating so that they can be thinner um, really narrow views of what they should look like. Um, and that, yeah, that starts, you see that in like age six and seven, and then it gets really bigger at around 10 and 11. And then when puberty happens for girls, you know, that we have such a thin ideal for what girls are supposed to look like. And then puberty kicks in and what happens? You get, you gain weight, you gain weight in your hips, you gain weight um, and parts of your body, like in, you know, parts of your body that you're not wanting to gain weight. And so girls often when they hit puberty are kind of thrust into this, um, space where they're even less happy with their bodies, but they're getting all this pressure now to value how they look for others. And so it's a really kind of impossible bind, right? You're biologically turning into something that's the opposite of what you're wanting to look like. How are Barbie dolls still even a thing? Like, how is that? I don't a know. I mean, and they're, yeah. And I mean, there's studies, experimental studies where they give girls, I was just telling my own kids this the other night, we were talking about it. Um, my 10 year old was saying the only toy I've ever banned were Barbies um, and like guns, like toy guns. Um, and I said it, that's because there are studies that show when they give like nine year old girls a Barbie to play with versus giving girls those um, kind of similar dolls, but are normal body proportions. So yeah. they look like actual people. Yeah. Um, they found that 
girls after they played with the Barbie for several minutes had worse body image than the girls playing with the other dolls. So they rated what their ideal body is further away from their actual body size. Um, and even the career Barbie, they did another study where they had kids playing with the career Barbie where I think they had, um, and even my daughter remembered the career Barbie. She saw it in the store. She's like, but it was wearing like a real big mini skirt and like the doctor jacket went longer than the mini skirt. I was like, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but the girls that were playing with that doctor Barbie had actually more restricted career aspirations after mm. than the one playing with, um, like a Mrs. Potato Head type of a doll. Um, and so I told the kids, I was like, the only reason I had those rules is because when I knew the research that showed you might yeah. feel worse about your body afterwards, why would I give you that? Just like I don't give you food that I know is bad for you. Or I wouldn't give you medicine that I thought would make you sick. I'm not going to give you toys that will make you not feel good about yourself. Hey, everybody, a quick break here to let you know that we are part of a podcast network called Sandy Boy Productions that I launched in the summer of 2019. We have a few other shows on the network. I'll have another with Lindsay Hine hosted by me where I interview runners, the Up and Running podcast hosted by Lauren Floris and Abby Stanley. Those ladies are bringing you all of the latest news and elite and professional distance running. And then we have the Illuminate podcast hosted by Emma Benner. You hear from me a little bit over there and Kristen Sruer. That is a show where we are just bringing you uplifting stories of people doing good work in the world. You can learn more about the podcast network when you go to sandyboyproductions.com and also check out the Instagram over there, Sandy Boy Productions. Emma posts all of the info from all of the shows on that Instagram feed. It's a great one to follow to keep in the know on what's going on. You can also find why is everyone yelling on Instagram? We are just why is everyone yelling? We'd love to have you join us over there as well as our Facebook group. Why is everyone yelling? All right. Enjoy the rest of my conversation with Dr. Christia Brown. We first said, have your boys play with girls. Your girls play with boys. Definitely integrate that early. I want to read to you what my eight-year-old responded when I asked him what the difference between boys and girls was. And then I want to talk about what we can do at a very young age to help our kids not have gender bias as they as they grow up um, and to not associate like our boys to associate, well, I'm good at math because I'm a boy kind of thing. Which I, I was actually really impressed with his answers. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I, you know, I haven't really researched this at all until I read your book. But uh, he said, I play with girls and I play with boys. Now I'm patting myself on the back, though, because that was a big talking point. Boys have penises. Girls have vaginas. Girls have babies. Boys don't. And then he said, there are more girl teachers than boy teachers. Which to me is probably just an observation of the teachers at his school. Um, and then I asked my six-year-old and, and he just said, boys have different private parts. So um, yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> yeah. They, they get, they get the, the basic biology here, but let's, let's talk about what we can do for these young kids to help them not associate themselves with, you know, having to do household chores because they're a girl or having to be really good at math because they're a boy. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it is like being aware of when you notice a stereotype, pointing it out. So this is what I think my advice is that's somewhat counterintuitive, I think, okay, is oftentimes parents want to say, well, my kids don't really notice this. And so I don't want to point it out because then I'll be drawing their attention to it. Well, the reality is kids do notice, like they know, like your son noticed that the teachers were girls, um, not boys, which is I'm certain accurate because that's the way it is um, in almost every elementary school in the country. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they noticed that and they would notice if you ask when you ask more pointed questions about well, who who's more likely to, you know, so one thing is asking about who's is usually president, mm -hmm. um, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and so they do notice um, and you ask, you know, who's most likely to be doctors and nurses and even things that seem outdated. Kids still seem to endorse who's 
so also things that change a little bit as they get older. So young kids might say um, boys and girls are equally likely to be scientists. But by the time they get a little bit older into later elementary school, they're actually more likely to say it's boys that are going to be scientists. Um, so partly it's them learning these social um, distinctions and these social stereotypes. So the advice I give that I think parents can use, which is based off of studies that we've seen, is helping kids spot the stereotypes that you're spotting. So being on the lookout, so basically teaching kids to be critical of the things that they see. So know that kids are paying attention to gender by about age three. They're endorsing for the most part stereotypes. And I think this is all kids. So my kids did it too when you asked them at a certain age. Um, and so helping kids find the stereotypes and the biases that are out there. So for example, when you know we were walking through um, a store one day and there was a bin of girl socks and a bin of boys socks and pointing out to my kids, I wonder why they differentiate. These were children's socks. You know, we all have the same feet when yeah. we're children, uh, uh, same size, same size uh, foot when we're kids. Um, and so I said, I wonder why they dif differentiated the girl socks and the boy socks. Why couldn't they have just put um, all of the socks together without the label? So I actually pointed it out. Um, and then we, and it's not like a big long lecture. It's just a, you know, a 15 second conversation. And the kid's like, yeah, I don't know why they do that. It's like, okay, let's figure the socks we like the best. And we picked the ones out of both boxes that she liked the best and we kept walking. But partly by doing that and doing it consistently, when you see something on TV, just point out, hey, I wonder why they do that. Mm. That seems like a stereotype to mm -hmm. me. It helps kids be critical of the real sexism out there the yeah. sexism that harms both boys and girls um and so then they'll recognize they'll recognize it for what it is as opposed to like absorbing it as the inevitable way things are um so know that kids are paying attention kids are paying way more attention than i think adults realize and the more that we can give them they call it giving them a sexism schema giving them an explanation in their head to understand the gender stuff that they're going to see so that they'll understand when you're not there, they'll be able to kind of say, oh, that's a stereotype. That doesn't have to be that way. So in some ways, it's like you're just teaching them. In some ways, I think of it as like almost media literacy, right? It's just stereotype literacy. Like, let me think about how do I recognize, oh, why are they doing that? And to like question stuff. And the only way to get kids to question stuff in terms of inequalities that, that can be changed is to help them recognize that it's not inevitable, that it is a stereotype, that it does lead to a bias. And again, these aren't big, long lectures. I mean, these are like 10 second conversations, right? It's, oh, hey, I wonder why they do it that way. Because that suggests to kids, maybe there's another way to do it. Um, and I think that is, it doesn't teach your kids to be sexist or to be biased. It helps them spot it out in the world because it's out in the world. And the only other alternative is they'll just absorb it and come to believe it. I I love that idea of just helping your kids stay curious too. I mean, and, and that's I know that's one of your one of the things you you enjoy talking about too is like not taking everything you see, like the media, for instance, as it is. Question what you're seeing because you know you see something on the internet or on the TV. And if you're 10 years old and your parent hasn't taught you otherwise, you just assume that's what it is. Right. And I mean, and you see this at profound levels in society now, right? When people believe stuff they see on the Internet, it leads to all sorts of societal problems. So I think just teaching um, critical, I mean, it's really just a form of critical thinking, right? It's wait a minute, is that really, does that make sense to me? Is there, could there be a different way? Does that logically follow? Is there someplace I could go and look for something else that would make more sense? I think just being critical of the things that we see, right? That is curiosity. I think it is critical thinking. And I think, wow, of all the skills we want our kids to develop, I mean, we want them to be critical thinkers. Um, and so I think we should do that with these social things, just like we'd want them to be critical thinkers in an English class or in like language yeah. arts and social studies and science. We also want them to be critical thinkers about the world. Um, and they're going to see so many stereotypical images and biased images, whether it be gender, race or um, LGBTQ status. I mean, there's so many biased messages out there. 
And so we really want it to be a red flag for kids to say, oh, wait a minute, that's what that is. That's a stereotype. That's not real. Um, I just think we can't provide um, blinders for kids. I think it's better to provide shields, right, to help kind of so that they can shield themselves from it. Um, Censoring doesn't work. I mean, even when you try to censor out stereotypes from your kids' lives, it just doesn't work. So the only way to do is to help them be able to battle it on their own. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's jump into the anti-racism piece just a little bit, because it's it's similar with with that when parents just say, well, my my kid doesn't even realize, you know, that the neighbor is black and we are white. But that's not true. And so making sure that we're talking to our kids from a very young age, not just about not being racist, but being anti-racist is really important. So um, can you just kind of expand on those thoughts a little bit? Yeah, I always think that like color blindness is a medical condition. It is not a, a reality, right? It is not what kids um see in the world of race. We come in different shades. Of course kids notice race. Of course they do. Um, And what white kids learn is that we should never talk about race Mm. because most white parents don't talk about race. And I think very well-intentioned, and I say I'm white, uh, but I think very many well-intentioned white parents don't want to make their kids racist. So therefore they say, if I talk about it, they'll notice it. And if they notice it, they'll become racist. So their approach is just, let's not talk about it. It also makes them uncomfortable, right? It's also not a pleasant conversation to have. Um, But the reality is kids notice race. They can sort faces based on race categories before they're one year old. Um, So they pay attention to it from very early in life. Um, and they start to endorse stereotypes about race by the time they're about four years old. Wow. So kids are paying attention and they are developing race biases. And if we don't talk about it, we never have a chance to intervene on those. Um, we're kind of leaving kids to navigate this really complex idea completely on their own. And so the only way that I think we can ever reduce racism is to have people talking much more about it than we are now. And they just have to get comfortable with it and kind of parents addressing their own race biases, getting comfortable with their own biases because we all have biases and we have to work daily to overcome them. And then talking about with kids. Um, And again, it's the same thing with gender. It's a really similar kind of argument with gender is that we need to talk more about it, not less about it. Ideally, it will become an irrelevant conversation at one point in our future. But until that point, we have to talk more about it because kids are thinking about it. I love the idea too of of starting off that conversation with asking our kids questions as well. You know, like with the uh, gender bias questions, asking them questions to get like just a fresh, clear picture of what they see Mm -hmm. um, instead of just flooding them with information right from the start. Yeah, and I think that parents sometimes get overwhelmed thinking about how do I bring this up? But I think these are like the small little conversations, Mm -hmm. right? This isn't like you sit down and have a talk with kids. It's I think it should be the little ones that come on when a commercial comes on or when a kid's show comes on Mm -hmm. and all the characters are white saying, I wonder why all the characters are white on this show. Um, And say, I wonder why they're only friends with other white kids here. Um, Or, I mean, things like that, or when you see race being associated with being poor on television, how come whenever they show someone poor, they're shown as black? Um, Or when someone makes a comment about a neighbor, um, making the little bitty comments to help kids recognize that, for one, it's an okay topic to talk about, that it's not taboo. And to, then that leads to bigger conversations. And I'll say with race, there's so many good kids books out there that I think are really good conversation starters too, particularly now. I mean, I think yeah. there already was, but after, you know, last year, I think a, the market was, had a really big influx of kids com- books about that. So I think having, for parents that are uncomfortable, yeah. having books is a really useful way, right? So you read for five minutes and you say, oh, what did you think about this? And just to have, again, these like little minute, five minute conversations um, are much more useful and much more effective and I think much more comfortable because, you know, these aren't 
one and done conversations. It has to be part of parenting. I think we want to, you know, in the same way that we parent our kids to be helpers, right? We want to teach our kids that helping others is important. We want to teach our kids that being kind is important, right? All of these things, we want to teach our kids that being curious and being a good student. I mean, these are kind of not one-time conversations where we say, being a good student is important. Okay, let us never talk about it again, <laughs> right? It's probably how we always do it, right? We set aside time for homework. We check in. We do, like, it's part of our daily parenting lives. And so in the same way about being kind to others, we didn't have one conversation with kids about, okay, we need to be kind to others. Remember that. And then we stopped. It's constantly, right? It's when they get into an argument with their brother or sister. It's when we see something going on on TV. It's when we see um, them make a comment about someone else. It's constant. And I think to help kids not to push back against racism in an active, thoughtful, effective way. We have to have those daily conversations in the same way, right? It's just part of raising kids in a complicated, biased world. If we want them to, if we want to change it, it's going to take effort. It's not just going to naturally happen. Yeah. And I wanted to mention to the listeners too, um, over the summer I interviewed Faith Brooks and she works for Be The Bridge and they have a really um, good parenting course on teaching your kids about anti-racism. I, I bought it. I think it's like $18 or something like that. Um, so there, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes as a resource. Yeah. And I also think like teachingtolerance.org is really great. It's one of my favorites. Um, it's a division. It's like the educational arm of Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, and they do a lot of evidence-based stuff. A lot of it's for classrooms, but a lot of it is for parents. Um, EmbraceRace.org is a great organization. They've got a ton of books that are great for parents. It's really parent-focused, and it's, I think, also a really good resource. Because I, I get that it's it's awkward and it's uncomfortable. And oftentimes kids say things at the most inopportune moments, right? Mm -hmm. It's often when you're in the grocery store and a kid makes a comment you're like, oh, wow, I didn't know they thought that, but they usually say it really loud. Yeah. Um, and so typically try to, you know, really tamp it down and say, Shh, let's not talk about this now. But the reality is we have to like use those as learning moments for kids and to talk about that. You know, story I tell a lot is my own. So one of the things we see about race is we tend to think people that are of a different race than us all look alike. Mm. So we, mm -hmm. it's called an outgroup homogeneity effect. And it's, you know, all X looks alike. Well, all of us have as much variation as everyone else. So it's just that we're not used to differentiating people that are in a different racial group than we are. Um, partly it's that use it or lose it idea. It's where babies are good at it. But as they get older, we get worse at differentiating the individuals of a different race. So with my oldest daughter, when she was young, she was like two or three, we were in a restaurant um, and it was a soul food restaurant in, in LA and it had a wall of um, like kind of B and C level celebrities that had eaten at the restaurant. You okay. know? So all the frame, like headshots of, you know, this wall of all these faces. So a lot of like 60s, 70s, and 80s, C-list celebrities, black faces on this wall. And my white daughter looked at one of them, and I it was a celebrity I had never seen. Again, it was pretty C-level celebrities. And she shouts very loudly, Oprah. Um, <laughs> and I was like, yes. And so it was pretty loud. And you're yeah. like, oh, so... And so instead of having to just shut that down, which is what I felt like doing, because it was pretty loud and embarrassing, um, we just walked up to the wall and I said, no, look, she's got, look at her hair. So Oprah has different color skin than this, because this woman had much, much darker skin. Uh -huh. And so we pointed let's look at the individual variation. We're not going to treat this as one big group. We're going to look at her individual features and characteristics. And so then we, I pointed and we stood by the wall for a few minutes and I was like, Oh look, this woman has braids and this woman has red glasses and look at her, her lips are, um, her top lip is bigger than this woman's lip. I mean, like pointing out actual physical features to basically say, these are all individuals who actually look quite different from one another. And we're not going to treat this as one big category. And so it's like those moments. And it took, again, you know, we were only there for like two minutes. It wasn't this big, long, drawn out event. But it did make me have to stop 
and thought, this is a learning moment. Yeah. I'm not going to sweep this rug because this is a phenomenon that happens. It's, it's not any kind of moral judgment against me or my kid, but this is, this is the way that racial biases perpetuate is we don't stop and address it in the moment um, and say, that's not okay. Let's, let's address it. And so that was, again, it can be embarrassing, but again, it's the small stuff. If we, if we let the small stuff slide, then it becomes much bigger and much harder to ever kind of erase. What a good example. Um, I had two thoughts. I was like, well, Oprah's definitely an A-list celebrity, (laughs) but my other thought was what would I wonder now? And now that you've had some time to think about it, I'm sure. What would you have done if it was a woman in person? Probably would have done the same thing, but probably softer. Yeah. I would have walked. Uh, um, and and I do that is when I see biases in person or when I see my kids say a bias in person, I kind of get out of earshot. But then I still have the same conversation. OK, yeah, because um, so, I don't want the other person to feel awkward. But right. I also don't want to let the moment pass with my own kid. And I'll say that, that comes up with gender a lot, yeah. too, where, I'll, where, where you see well, I mean, what actually happens more often is when an adult says something that's a real big gender stereotype and I don't want to let it slide with my own kid because I don't want my own kid to internalize it. And so I kind of get out of earshot and say, I know that they said that, but that would really be a gender stereotype. They probably don't realize that girls like to do this too, right? And so I correct it, but I try to do it in a way that's polite, that's, you know, the, the southerner in me can't really stand to be rude. Um, but I also can't let the stereotype pass and I don't want it to go unspoken. Um, I just do it one beak removed. That was actually one of the, the questions I definitely wanted to address is you probably get this a lot, but it's, it's when you have the family member that constantly says something. And I'm going to give you an example um, when my dad tells my boys, don't cry, don't cry like a little girl or something like that. Like, Oh, don't say that. And particularly in these circumstances when this is a person who is influential in your kid's life and they see all the time. It's one thing if someone says that to your kid and you know you're maybe going to see them once a year or once every five years. But if this is grandma or grandpa or an aunt or uncle that you're going to see, well, probably a lot more frequent than you know, in 20, 2020. Yeah. Um, but that's something that has to be addressed. So how do yeah. we handle those situations? I mean, I think sometimes I try to do it a bit as a joke or lighthearted in front of that, usually the grandparent. Um, and if it's not the right time, then I'll do it right after. So sometimes I'll do it more lighthearted. I was like, oh, granddad doesn't know that sometimes boys cry and sometimes girls don't cry and that crying has nothing to do with whether you're a boy or a girl. Right. So sometimes I'll say it kind of lighthearted right in front of them, partly to say to the parent, Hey, cut it out. Quit saying this. Um, and then sometimes though, if that moment doesn't present itself. So I know my own, um, my kid's grandparent was making a comment about how rough and tumble boys were, but was like, lit- my own daughters were literally wrestling in the middle of the <laughs> living room. And like she had to step over them while she was making the comment. And I thought, <laughs> ignoring the fact that my 10 year old almost knocked over the lamp. Um, but so I say to them after the fact, so they ended up and we were walking out. I was like, you know, Nana sometimes forgets. I was like, maybe in Nana's day, she didn't realize, but girls can be, can play rough just like boys can play rough. And some boys play gentle and some boys play rough and some girls play gentle and some girls play rough. And so Nana sometimes forgets that because things are different now. Sometimes I blame age just because I feel like nicer than saying grandma's really biased. (laughs) (laughs) Not say that, but say sometimes grandma gets confused that girls can do this and boys can do this. Um, And sometimes I say it in front of them, but I try to do it. I don't think lecturing them works well, but I do think that over time when I say it enough, it does eventually sink in. And so I, I, again, I don't think putting people on the defensive ever works. So I think kind of going on the attack has never been an effective way to get people to be less biased. And so I try to be a little more lighthearted and to be a little bit more um, kind about it. Mm -hmm. And if the moment's not right, I definitely do it in the car ride home. Mm. Yeah, man, it's it is such a generational thing, too. I mean, I think that 
you know, by the time our kids are parents, we're going to see it less and less. But um, when you have a 70-year-old grandparent who has been living this their whole life, that is a challenge. Right. And so I often think I probably am not going to change their beliefs, Mm -hmm. but maybe Mm -hmm. I can change the things they say out loud to my kids. And if, and I'll take that. So even if they still believe the gender stereotype, if I can help them learn not to say it um, to the kids, then I consider that a win. And my, you know, that's plan A is to, Plan A is to get them to change their ways of thinking. That's I'm never holding my breath for that. But plan B is maybe just don't say it to my kids. Plan C is I'll make sure my kids recognize it's a stereotype. So at least even if they do say it to my kids, my kids are like, oh, yeah, Nana's kind of crazy. About that. <laughs> and they can drive a little bit in a respectful way. But yeah. then it doesn't seem to kids. I figure if nothing else, it's one of those points along <laughs> one of those points of action will work. Well, this has been just wonderful, and and I hope that it's given the listeners here some things to think about in the ways we talk about things with our kids and also just how we're introducing things to our kids and, and not basing that on what their gender is. Let's uh, wrap up here. I'm curious. You mentioned some great books on anti-racism for kids. Do you have any that you highly recommend? Right now we have a whole pile of them. Um, right now I've been really interested. I mean, my kids are a little bit older right now. Um, so How old right are now, yours? right now they're sixteen and ten. Okay. Um, and so we've gone out of the slightly the kind of board book ages. Um, so with the older one, we just got finished or about a year ago, we were reading, um, the hate you give, which I really recommend for the older ones. Okay. Um, Cause it was a really good conversation that came out of it. Um, the younger ones, we do a lot of thinking about kind of historical discrimination. So there's a lot about kind of Rosa Parks, but then really connecting it to protest now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, so she has a book about a biography of Rosa Parks. So we were looking at that. And it's a really those um, who are they books, those little mini bio biography books um, and really talking about well, what's that look like now? And so talking about the Black Lives Matter movement is like a modern version of like the bus strike. So thinking about how does this play out in our modern life? Right. Is that just because a lot of the a lot of books are kind of historical in nature. Um, but then there's also a lot of books about, you know, like um, biracial kids. There's a great book about Marissa McDonald doesn't match. Um, which I love as a fan of my kids where it's a girl that's Peruvian and I want to say Scottish. Um, and so she talks about the different parts of her identity and about feeling compelled to pick one or the other and how that doesn't really describe her. So a lot about, um, racial diversity. We spend a lot of time about that when they were young, thinking about like the skin you're in is a good one of just kind of the appreciation of human diversity and really talking about it of, you know, what does your skin look like? What about people like this? And so talking about like that. So it's also really easy to find books now with much more diverse characters. Yeah. And I've seen that as a sh- even when my 16-year-old was little, there's been a big change in the oh, past that. you know, 10 years. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. Okay, what's, what's something that, what is a goal or something that you want to do either on your own or with your family that you haven't done yet? Goal. Right now, gosh, we haven't even been in school for 10 months. Right now, it's like survive. Get um, back to school. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I know. Uh, yeah, it's, I don't even know. My, the year has been so crazy. I mean, I think what's been an interesting thing is just surviving this year has been a real challenge of um, thinking about focusing on others. So part of one thing we've been doing is trying to think about ways we can kind of give back and be really helpful to our community. I've been like, I've been really mindful of, I have a stable job. I'm a college professor. The college is still here. I still have a job. We still have a home. My kids are healthy. Um, And helping them understand that level of privilege and how lucky we are um, through no work of theirs. They did nothing to contribute to that. (laughs) Um, They just were born into a, into a kind of 
fortunate situation. Um, and think about ways we can be helpful to others. So that's what our current goal is, is we're kind of brainstorming things we can do. Um, because I'm really mindful of the disparities that are, that are getting bigger right now um, and helping kids kind of figure that out, but figure out in a way that they feel fun, that that feels kind of joyful to them um, and kind of finding that joy in these days is getting to be harder and harder as they they're now going on a year of having seen their friends at school. Yeah, I actually I love that answer because I think that. 90% of the people listening will just totally relate to that. Like, what do you mean goals? What are you, what are you talking about? What I'm going to be doing in five years or what my big, big crazy goal is. I just want to get through this. Yeah. And so that's probably what I've been trying to do is like, how can we though focus on like, there is a bigger, there is a bigger picture there. Right. Um, but doing ways that, that feel also joyful, um, is I think the real challenge. I think sometimes we have to change our goals, right? Like, right. I think if you'd asked me this a year and a half ago, we had all sorts of fabulous goals, you know, luckily right before we went to Paris for a month, I was teaching abroad. I was teaching a class on gender and sexuality and Islamophobia. And we spent a month there and that was a major goal that we all got to really, um, as a family experience. And all we so we hit a lot of goals and a lot of great things and then COVID hit. And so then everything came to a screeching halt. So now it's kind of trying to get our equilibrium back a bit. I think sometimes you got your goals have to be really your standard has to be really low. That's awesome that you got to knock that trip out and and teach on that for that month before everything got crazy because that would have been that would have been canceled. Yeah, it would have been. And so we were I was very thankful for that. And we spent two months in D.C. while I was writing doing research for a new book and then the world completely shut down. So now we got to kind of ramp back up, but it's hard because, you know, when you have kids, you know, your, your kids are worried about the world and they're feeling sad about the things they're missing. And so it's become a little bit more of an immediate, let's just deal with our daily finding something joyful in the day. That's really what we've ratcheted down to. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting conversation itself. Just um, walking through this with a 16 year old, you know, all my kids are still pretty eight and under. So it's a totally different ballgame emotionally and mentally how those bigger kids are are handling it. Have you shared what you're writing your new book on or is that on the DL still? No, I can't. No, it's um, it'll come out in November. So um, it's at the publishers now being copy edited. Um, it's going to be called, um, unraveling bias. Okay. How prejudice has affected kids for generations and why it's time to stop. So it's really looking at kind of race and gender and the ways it's embedded in our laws and our policies and in our day to day stuff and how we can help kids be both less biased themselves and be protected from the bias they're experiencing. Um, and basically saying we have to change not only our the hearts and minds, but also our policies. And um, it's going to take kind of coming at it from all angles to make things better for the next generation. Nice. Okay, what is your last message you want to leave our audience with today? I mean, I think just to have these conversations with kids more often. I think even if you're uncomfortable with it, even say, this makes me really feel uncomfortable, but I feel like we should talk about race. You know, I feel like, have you noticed this? I was like, and even being like honest and saying, I don't even know what the right answer is, but this makes me feel sad when I see this happening. Um, and so just having more of those conversations, even if they're not perfect, mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, kind of giving yourself the permission to kind of flub it a little bit and to be awkward, but to know that having the conversations is really the big important first step and that there's no perfect way to do it, but kids really want to hear from us. You know, I think the outside world is really loud. Mm. Um, and mm. if we're silent in it, then the outside world's the only voice they're hearing. Um, and they really want to know our perspective and they really need our help navigating everything. And that it's kind of up to us to just get over our own anxiety about doing it wrong and just start, start in small ways. That's powerful. Yeah. You want to be the voice that your kids learn from over the outside world. Yeah. That's good. Uh, all right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks. All right, friends. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Dr. Christia, for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge of this very important topic and topics with the listeners and myself. I am grateful for the work you are doing. And if you all want to check out 
her book. It's called Parenting Beyond Pink and Blue by Dr. Christia Brown. I listened to it on Audible. All right. I would love to connect with all of you on social media. You can find this podcast, Why Is Everyone Yelling on Instagram. You can find me personally on Instagram. I'm lindsayhine626, although I also am the person behind the Why Is Everyone Yelling account as well. And you can find Sandy Boy Productions on Instagram. Sandy Boy Productions. Thanks for being here. I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did. And I also hope you have a really great rest of your week. We will see you next week on Why Is Everyone Yelling?